Hey guys, welcome to Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. Journalism is under threat. From lawsuits to burnout, and yes, even violence, we're facing an unprecedented number of obstacles at home and abroad. It's a challenging, even dangerous time to be a reporter, which is why we've devoted our new issue to the biggest threats journalists face today. It's coming out next week, but we wanted to give you, our loyal listeners, a preview of what's on its pages. Here to discuss the new issue is Kyle Pope, our esteemed editor and publisher. Kyle, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So... Our last two issues in 2017 focused on local news and Donald Trump's impact on the media, which were stories that made sense for that year. Why threats in 2018? Why pick this as the focus for our first issue of the year? Well, I mean, you said it when we started out. I mean, journalism clearly is under threat. Um, And I just thought it was a good time for us to sort of step back and evaluate, you know, what, what are the nature of these threats? Are You know, how serious are they? How do we put them in some kind of historical com- context, how afraid should we be? Um, and it was, a, it was a fascinating exercise because what I thought we were going to be doing in this issue was not what we did. What did you think we were doing? I thought we were going to, I thought it was going to be the stuff that you'd expect. I thought it would be a tally of lawsuits. It would be a tally of reporters who were assaulted. It would be a tally of, uh, you know, restrictions on open access to information. And all that is definitely there. But um, there's also this whole other realm of threat that I hadn't, frankly, sort of thought through. And it's, and it's things like burnout, both for reporters and for readers, frankly. Um, it's sexual harassment. It's um, the failure to cover race adequately as a threat. It's um, the business model of journalism as a threat. It's... Um, you know, the wiping out of digital archives is a threat. So, you know, I mean, and I've actually found this to be the case with all of these uh, these single topic issues of the print magazine that we do, because because they are single topic, you end up going very deep, very quickly, it almost becomes this sort of metaphysical question about like, how do we even define what a threat is? Yeah, I'm sitting here, and as you can probably hear, we have the physical pages of the magazine. I love that uh, sound. It sounds like a, it sounds like a bad muffler. Yeah, uh, but it it is not what I expected. I mean, I was assuming there would be some Trump stuff, there would be some lawsuits, and there are the stories from other parts of the world that I also expected to be there. But you mentioned some of the stuff about business and the digital archive piece that's uh, towards the end of the magazine I really found interesting. Um, that single issue deep dive seems to really open up a, a number of pathways that we weren't expecting to go down. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we try to do with this issue is um, is move it somewhat away from um, stuff that just journalists care about. I mean, I have no doubt that that um, that journalism is being threatened right now. And what what really matters isn't so much that we convince our colleagues that this is a problem, right? Because that's a pretty easy job, frankly. What really matters is that we get um, our readers and our viewers and the and the public to care, um, because at the end of the day, that's what's going to make a difference in terms of whether people respond to this. So, how do we get them to care? Well, I mean, in this issue, we just we try to we we try to point to the effects of some of these threats. I mean, this digital archives thing is a good example. Like, does it matter to you if your favorite website just disappears from the face of the earth um, and you can never read any of these stories again? 
Um, one of the other things that we looked at is this this sort of relatively new business model that's emerging w- with these billionaires buying up media companies. And, we just and on, saw that this week with the LA we Times. We saw it this week at the LA Times. We don't know how that's going to play out because he just showed up. But, you know, um, on the one hand, it, it's it's it, it, they were able to rescue sort of failing media uh, operations, but you know, if this happens in your community, should you be scared? And actually, this story, which I thought was terrific, says yes. I mean, not everybody's going to be Jeff Bezos at the Washington Post, which you know he's received high marks for what he's done there. But for every Bezos, you have a Jim Ricketts shutting down DNA Info. Yeah, yeah, we're really early on in this process, and and I mean, and frankly, the uh, the the new guy at the um, L.A. Times. I mean, there's like some worrying stuff there about you know what are his motivations for buying this newspaper, and is it because he was he was uh, burned by stories that the paper wrote in the past? That certainly was the case with Peter Thiel, who took upon himself to um, wipe out Gawker because of some coverage he didn't like. Yeah, and to launch the issue, we're holding an event up in Toronto with the Committee to Protect Journalists. What sort of conversations are going to be happening at those panels? Yeah, well, first off, I, I'm I'm really excited that we did this this issue in conjunction with CPJ, which is really the dominant sort of uh, journalism advocacy organization around the world. The director of CPJ, Joel Simon, has a piece in the magazine. Um, Christian Amanpour, who works with CPJ, has a piece in the magazine. So we're doing this event in Toronto because we wanted to get out of the U.S., um, but not to get too far. Right. Um, um, you know, really sort of diving into the content of the magazine and trying to put all of this in some kind of bigger sp- perspective. Because this is going to be happening in Canada, we didn't want to make it so domestic. So, you know, we're talking about Trump as a sort of global phenomenon as it relates to how he sees the press. So sort of this Trumpism. And this is this is something I see a lot when, when we write stories, even if they're about Trump, but especially if we write stories about stuff that's going on in other parts of the wor- world, um, journalists in those places really respond and it, and it resonates. And the truth is that this is a sort of global phenomenon. You could even s- sort of call it maybe like a contagion where there is this newfound um, boldness by people, especially in autocratic regi- regimes, to crack down on the press. You're seeing it and certainly you see it in Russia. You're seeing it in India, not an autocratic regime, but definitely a press crackdown. You're seeing it in Japan. You're seeing it in nationalist Europe. Um, so this is a thing that reporters and people who care about information around the world are grappling with. So that's really what we wanted to try to get our arms around. Right. And going off that idea of leaders around the world using the same terminology as Trump and dismissing things as fake news, we're seeing that on some level in the U.S. at local levels, right, at state and at city levels. And that might be a way to get readers to help understand that it's not all about Washington and Trump. These are tactics that are being used that affect their daily access to information. Yeah. And this is something that you know a lot of us who watch this closely have been worried about, is this kind of trickle down of the rhetoric. Um, it's one thing for Trump to talk about it. It's one thing for him to tweet about it. But you know, we've, we really have started to see state officials and local officials picking up the same language that Trump uses. Um, and unfortunately, you, you also see um, citizens and readers picking up the same language. We, we get it at CJR when we write stuff that, that sort of triggers this reaction. You see a sort of commonality in the words that people use. So I, mean, I think this is one of the bigger challenges we have now in, in terms of the moment that we're in is how do we communicate the danger here and how do we communicate the risk, not to journalists, because again, I don't think most readers care that much about that and I'm not even sure they should. 
Um, but what we have to do is is convey to them that this is going to affect the kind of information that you get, and it's going to it's going to affect the sort of the ability of you to be informed about what's going on in your town and in your community. Right. It's not just a threat to journalism and our jobs. It's a threat to democracy that we all yeah. And, and 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 when you say it like that, it sounds grandiose, but I don't think it is. I think um, you know one of the things that I've been really struck by in the last few months is how fragile. The First Amendment is, and how you know I thought we had sort of won this battle over like why the freedom of, a, of a, uh, why a free press is important, but we haven't won it. Um, and there's a lot of people in the country who aren't convinced, and so that's you know part of what we're trying to do is sort of shine a light on this. So you said one of the goals going in was to figure out how afraid we should be, having assigned and edited and now read all of these pieces. What's your answer to that? How how scared should we be? I think we should be vigilant. I'm not sure we should be scared, although our opening essay is all about fear. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I, I really, and I've said this a, a, a lot of times about how the moment that we're in is so, um, is such a sort of tale of two journalisms, right? I mean, you have on the one hand all this stuff that's going on that's scary and threatening, and on the other hand, you know, just amazing work, amazing stories, a lot of. Um, just a ton of energy and enthusiasm by reporters, unlike anything I've seen for a long time. So, you know, if you were to ask me, all things being equal, would you rather not have gone through this last year? I think the answer is, I think it, I think it was important that we go through it. And if not Trump, it would have been somebody else. Yeah, we're dealing with issues in the magazine that are bigger than just Trump. And right. I think that really comes across. As Kyle mentioned, we'll be launching the new issue in Toronto this coming Monday, February 12th, at an event in partnership with the Committee to Protect Journalists. Visit cjr.org for more information, to RSVP for the event if you're in the Toronto area, or to become a member and get this issue delivered right to your doorstep. Turning now to the news of the week, I'm joined by my colleagues Meg Dalton and Alex Neeson. Meg, thanks for being here. Thank you, Pete. Alex, great to have you back. Happy Black History Month. All right, so we start this week with a piece, Alex, that you wrote about the National Magazine of Texas, Texas Monthly, and some ethical gray waters that their editor-in-chief waded into in a cover story decision, maybe not quite quid pro quo, but uh, certainly some shady conversations he was having with Bumble, the online dating app whose founder was profiled and who got the cover of the magazine. So can you take us through what actually happened there? Yeah. So I heard from some staffers at Texas Monthly who reached out after an editorial meeting where there were conversations about their innovators uh, issue, which is the February issue. And Whitney Wolf Heard, who's the founder and CEO of Bumble, the woman-centric dating app, uh, was being profiled as, you know, part of this, you know, 15 Texans or something like that. Um, and in this meeting, there had been some conversations about promoting the story on social media. And Tim Taliaferro, the editor-in-chief there, had suggested that Bumble, in exchange for uh, putting Whitney Wolf Heard on the cover, was going to spend uh, money on social promotion. And the staffers who reached out uh, described this sort of stunned silence in the meeting. People were really upset by this 
you know, what they had interpreted as a very obvious breach of journalistic ethics. So did some reporting and turned out that um, Talia Farrow had been in contact with representatives from Bumble discussing in kind of weirdly intimate detail their social media strategy. Bumble had uh, discussed in emails spending $25,000 on paid social media promotion, which is sort of this strange cousin of advertising. So there was no money uh, that was talked about being exchanged from Bumble given to Texas Monthly, but there was this sort of uncomfortable back and forth where somebody at a news outlet was discussing with a private company how they were going to promote a story that their founder was being featured in. Yeah. When you talked about this in the newsroom, it was certainly fascinating. And I think we were all wondering where it was headed. What did Talia Farrow say when you got in contact with him? So he uh, sort of painted the whole situation as a big misunderstanding. He said that the decision to put Whitney Wolf Heard on the cover had been made prior to his conversations with Bumble about their uh, social media strategy. The story, uh, and I was able to confirm this, but the story had actually been written last year. It was something that had been in the works for months and for a couple of different reasons, including Hurricane Harvey, um, had sort of been held for a long time. So he says that, you know, this was something that had been in the works. They had been in touch with uh, representatives from Bumble and with uh, Whitney Wolfhard herself for a really long time. Um, and at the time that the emails were sent, which was right before the issue went to press, um, he says that the decision to put her on the cover was already made and would have happened whether or not uh, Bumble was going to spend money on paid social media promotion. That said, there was this pretty damning line in those emails that you got a hold of where Talia Farrow says to the Bumble representative, quote, I can't stress enough how much is on the line for me with this deal. I must have this story perform and earn lots of eyeballs. Yeah. And I should back up just a little bit. Um, when I started uh, working on this, there had been that initial editorial meeting uh, where staff members found out about this. And uh, Talia Farah addressed staff after that, after I had reached out to him and sort of backpedaled and said, no, you guys have misunderstood. That's not what I meant. There's no deal. There's no arrangement. Um, this was not an exchange of any kind. Then we've got this email that really suggests otherwise. Um, and he confirmed the legitimacy of the email and sort of explained it away and just saying, you know, I'd be more concerned if I wasn't involved in conversations with them about, you know, their paid, paid social media strategy. And we had already made the decision to put her on the cover and the two had nothing to do with each other, which was kind of a like, OK. <laughs> but I mean, I think the email was pretty, uh, pretty damning. And after you published the piece, some things changed at Texas Monthly. Yeah. So there was um, I think there was a lot of talk about this and people were very worried and concerned about how this all looked. And Texas Monthly, about a week later, hired Rich Oppel, um, who used to be the editor at the Austin American Statesman and has won several Pulitzer Prizes as an ombudsman, which I thought was really surprising, uh, particularly now as most news organizations are getting rid of their ombudsman. Uh, they're, at Texas Monthly, they've decided that it's necessary to hire someone. They're still saying that there was no quid pro quo, there was no deal, there was no arrangement, that there were no... Uh, journalistic ethics that were uh, cr no line was crossed. But they said 
they did acknowledge that it looked bad and that those email communications were inappropriate um, and that they were going to hire an ombudsman to kind of look into their editorial process and make suggestions to the company about how they can preserve the integrity of uh, what's a really important publication. Yeah, it is an important publication, as you say. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with it, first go online and search their archives because they have some great stuff. And it bills itself as the National Magazine of Texas, which it kind of is, right? They cover politics. They cover crime, especially in a really deep and interesting way. And the magazine has served as this great incubator of talent from Pam Koloff to Jake Silverstein to Skip Hollinsworth. They have a ton of great writers and editors coming out of there. I think part of what made this story hit home so hard was that people have been a little bit concerned about Tim Taliaferro, the editor-in-chief, basically since he took over last year. Yeah, and early last year, we published a story on CJR that sort of described his, quote, strategy for Texas Monthly, which was to move away from politics and focus more on lifestyle. So this whole kind of kerfluffle over the last couple of weeks kind of reflects his his vision for the magazine. Yeah, in that piece, he told Liz Lenz that uh, text, this was the, the quote that kind of brought him a lot of uh, grief. He said, Texans don't care about politics. And Texans responded to that by saying, yes, we do. And we want our politics coverage to appear in your magazine as it has for decades. So that started what's been a, a bit of concern among people that really care about this great institution of, that is Texas Monthly uh, and the direction that he's taking it. So, Alex, your piece with its impact, I think, has really brought about a thing we can look at and say, this is great, having an ombudsman there and someone with uh, you know a, a long reputation of great journalism is important. Yeah, and I think it's especially uh, significant just because of its location. There's so much criticism now with uh, you know the national press corps being clustered on the coasts and generally ignoring everything in between. And so to have a magazine like Texas Monthly that has been able to stay in Texas and to keep really talented people in Texas. Um, you know, Pam Coloff is no longer working there, but she was there for almost 20 years. Um, and that's just really incredible uh, to keep someone in Texas and someone of that caliber. And so I think that sort of added to the concerns that began last year with his suggestion that they'd be moving away from their award winning political reporting towards lifestyle reporting. Um, and then again, now with this sort of muddy appearance of impropriety is what they called it. And Pam Coloff isn't the only person who's left, you know, within the last year. I think 11 major editorial players at the magazine have left since new ownership took took over in November 2016. And brought in Tally Farrell. And, you know, brought in Tally Farrell, yeah. So, I mean, in my conversations with staffers there, it seems like there's real concern um, about what's happening uh, at a management level there. I think that people care a great deal about Texas Monthly as an institution and about what's going to happen to Texas Monthly. And so that they've hired an ombudsman seems like a positive step. Um, and it, you know, we'll have to wait and see what comes of that, whether there are suggestions made and whether they take those uh, suggestions and, and make changes. But I think that it's significant to note that people inside are not feeling good about the way things are being handled so far since we've had this sort of um, the purchase uh, of the magazine and then these all of these changes, including this sort of exodus of talent. Okay, from Texas Monthly to another publication that's experienced some serious turmoil over the past several weeks, the LA Times has a new owner. 
This comes after a month which saw, let me see if I can get everything in here, a successful unionization push, a publisher suspended after reports of previous sexual harassment, although we just found out earlier this week that he's been reinstated and promoted to a different position at Trunk, a critical profile of the now former editor-in-chief Louis Dvorkin in CJR, which at least contributed to uh, his quote-unquote promotion to an executive position back at the mother company Trunk, the revelations that Trunk was planning a shadow newsroom to replace some of the LA Times' coverage uh, on national and political issues, an apparent leak investigation against the very journalists in the newsroom who were speaking to reporters at other publications. Uh, And just when everything seemed like it was going to settle down, the paper was sold. Does that about cover it? I think so. kind of like a soap opera. Yeah. A really bad reality show. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely has been. That new owner is Patrick Soon-Shong, an L.A. billionaire who has uh, kind of made his name in the biomedical field. He was also an investor in Trunk, a major shareholder there who was brought in to help fight off a takeover bid by Gannett a couple years ago. He became sort of an adversary of Trunk chairman Michael Farrow, um, but he is L.A.-based, and so now we have this great institution in the hands of local ownership, which is good. But it's another billionaire owning a major journalistic property. So what do we think of that idea in general, the billionaires taking over? That's a billion dollar question, Pete. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's definitely a trend. (laughs) How do we feel about this? This is, we should mention, Jeff Bezos. It's Joe Ricketts at DNA Info. It's Lorraine Powell Jobs' Emerson Collective, which now owns a majority stake in The Atlantic and contributes to several other journalistic outlets. Um, this seems to be a trend at this point, right? We have enough data points that billionaires have the money to spend. Some of them are civically minded. Some of them, though, have a different agenda. And I guess we won't know where Shang fits in. Um, but I guess my reaction to it was, well, it can't be any worse than Trunk was for the LA Times. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tricky situation because on the one hand, there's like this quote, like, save your narrative that's being pushed on him. But on the other, there's a lot of stuff he's said and done in the past that makes me question whether it's going to change much at the L.A. Times. I mean, someone I forget where, but someone had reported that, you know, in the past he was very critical of negative coverage of the company that he started that, you know, focuses on cancer research. I think he referred to it as uh, false reporting, which is just another way to say fake news. Right. He also has said, you know, some good things about journalism, about how we need uh, to save the integrity of journalism when he invested it in Trunk uh, initially. So I, I don't know. It's obviously too early to tell. But man, you just have to feel for some of the journalists out in L.A., who have dealt with a month that is as chaotic, I would imagine, as any that a major newspaper has been through in recent memory. I think there's just kind of so much we don't know, and this is the case with all of these billionaire owners, is that when you've got enormous sums of money, you can kind of do whatever you want. So even, you know, maybe it can't get much worse than it has been at the LA Times in the last month, but it probably could. (laughs) So I think a lot of this is just kind of waiting to see what what his next move is going to be. And like what happens when you concentrate all of this power in a single person? Yeah, like like I think journalists journalism has sort of 
existed in my mind anyways as this sort of like healthy antagonizer of institutions, of the government and of, you know, the elite ruling class of people with a lot of money. And so there's this shift now where the people with a lot of money are now you know, majority owners of a lot of really important journalistic institutions. And so how does that change? How does that shift that relationship? I don't think we, well, we have some really good examples about what happens um, with, you know, places like Gawker. But uh, I think at the LA Times, it's the question is, you know, how is that sort of shift in power going to change the LA Times or will it change the LA Times? Yeah, I mean, it's and it's not just the LA Times. It's also, we should mention the San Diego Union Tribune is part of the deal. Uh, Half a billion dollars for these two papers, which is double what Jeff Bezos paid for the Washington Post in 2013. So yeah, I do think we have examples. Most of us would say that Bezos has done a pretty impressive job with the Washington Post and really revitalized the place, uh, turned it into the major player that it is. We have other examples like Joe Ricketts at DNA Info and buying Gothamist and then shutting them down. So which way this is going to go, we obviously don't know yet. I do just, the whole trend feels a little bit concerning. And we have a really great piece coming out next week that's part of the new CJR issue about press threats, um, about billionaires and how they're reshaping media as we know it. I mean, one of the things that I'm kind of struck by is, you know, this sort of trend of billionaires getting involved in journalism. I wonder whether we have a better option that really gets at the financial problems that the industry is faced with. Money is tied up in so many of our problems. I mean, is there another viable option other than turning to these people who've got loads of it as far, you know, to keep our doors open? Yeah, I mean, it's tough, I imagine, to be a journalist at a place that's struggling to see your newsroom shrinking, to see your colleagues laid off. And then some white knight with billions of dollars comes in, or at least someone portraying themselves as a white knight. And you say, Okay, well, if you're going to invest in our work and I'm not going to have to worry as much about the guy at the desk next to me being let go or myself being let go, I don't know. I saw on Twitter yesterday that there were some L.A. Times journalists celebrating this move a little bit, uh, although that was tempered with some we'll see what happens here. But they seemed happy to get out from under the trunk banner at the very Mm -hmm. least. Yeah. So we'll see if this finally means that things are calming down at the LA Times and the journalists there can get back to producing the work that has made that such an important institution. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank my boss, Kyle Pope, for coming down to talk about our new issue and my colleagues, Meg and Alex, for being here to go over the news of the week. Please check out all the great content we've got up at cjr.org, including our new issue. And we'll see you next week.